Joshua chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Now Joshua was old, advanced in years. And the Lord said to him, dude, you are old. No, it doesn't say that in the text. I'm going to actually read it the way it says. You are old, advanced in years, and there remains very much land yet to be possessed. This is the land that yet remains. All the territory of the Philistines and all that of the Gezerites from Sihor, which is east of Egypt, as far as the border of Ekron, northward, which is counted as Canaanite. The five lords of the Philistines, the Gazites, the Ashdodites, the Ashkelonites, the Gittites, the Ekronites, also the Avites, from the south, all the land of the Canaanites, and Mirah, that belongs to the Sidonians as far as Aphek, to the borders of the Amorites, the land of the Gebelites, and all Lebanon toward the sunrise, from Baal, Gad, below Mount Hermon, as far as the entrance to Hamath, all the inhabitants of the mountains from Lebanon as far as the brook Misrephoth, and all the Sidonians, them I will drive out from before the children of Israel, only divide it by lot to Israel. As an inheritance, as I've commanded you. Now therefore, divide this land as an inheritance to the nine tribes and half the tribe of Manasseh. With the other half tribe, the, the Reubenites and the Gadites received their inheritance, which Moses had given them beyond the Jordan eastward, as Moses the servant of the Lord had given them, from Eror, which is on the bank of the river Arnon, and the town that is in the midst of the ravine, and all of the plain of Medeba, as far as Debon, all the cities of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, as far as the border of the children of Ammon, Gilead, and the border of the Gezerites, the Mechathites, all Mount Hermon, and all Bashan, as far as Salka, all the kingdoms of Og in Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth and Edri, who remained of the remnant of the giants, for Moses had defeated and cast out these. Therefore... Well, nevertheless, the children of Israel did not drive out the Gezerites or the Machthites, but the Gezerites and the Machathites dwell among the Israelites until this day. Only the tribe of Levi he had given no inheritance. The sacrifices of the Lord God of Israel made by fire are their inheritance, as he said to them. And Moses had given to the tribe of the children of Reuben, an inheritance among, according to their families. Their territory was from Aror, which is on the bank of the river Arnon, and the city that is in the midst of the ravine, and all the plain of Medeba, Heshbon, and all of its cities that are in the plain, Dibon, Bamot, Baal, Bet Baal Meon, Jahaza, Kidermot, Mephata, Kiryat, or Kirja, Kiryatayim, Sibma, Zeret, Shahar, on the mountains of the valley, Bet Peor, the slopes of Pisgah, and Bet Jeshemot, 
all the cities of the plain and all the kingdom of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, whom Moses struck with the princes of Midian, Evi, Rekim, Zur, Hur, and Reba, who were the princes of Sihon dwelling in the country. The children of Israel also killed with the sword Balaam, the son of Beor, the soothsayer among those who were killed by them. And the border of the children of Reuben was the bank of the Jordan. This was the inheritance of the children of Reuben according to their families, the cities and their villages. Moses also had given an inheritance to the tribe of Gad, to the children of Gad according to their families. Their territory was Jatser and all the cities of Gilead and half the land of the Ammonites as far as Aror, which is before Rabbah, and from Heshbon to Ramat, Mitzpah, and Betonim, and from Ma'anim to the border of Debir, and the valley Beth-Haram, Beth-Nimrah, Sukkot, and Zaphon, the rest of the kingdom of Sichon, king of Heshbon, with the Jordan as its border, as far as the edge of the Sea of Kinneret, which is really the Sea of Galilee, on the other side of the Jordan eastward. This is the inheritance of the children of Gad according to their families, the cities and their villages. Moses also had given an inheritance to the half-tribe of Manasseh. It was for half the tribe of the children of Manasseh according to their families. Their territory was from Ma'anim, all Bashan, all the kingdom of Og, king of Bashan, all the towns of Jair, which are in Bashan, 60 cities, half of Gilead and Ashtaroth, Edri, cities of the kingdom of Og in Bashan, were for the children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, for half of the children of Machir, according to their families. These are the areas which Moses had distributed as an inheritance in the plains of Moab on the other side of the Jordan by Jericho eastward. But to the tribe of Levi, Moses had given no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel was their inheritance, as he said to them, in the book of Joshua, we have seen the promised land occupied in chapter 11, verse 16. The enemy leaders overcome in chapter 12. Now in chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, we're going to unfold the tribal allotments. The land east of the Jordan was given to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. The lands west of the Jordan were going to be settled among the rest of the nine and a half tribes. So Ben or James, let's, yeah, let's get this map up. So I, I want you to get oriented in the geography of the land. And if you're unfamiliar, the little circle that you see just to, my, to your left of, of the word east, and you see the T at the top, that's the Galilee. There's a little line going down to the Dead Sea. You can see it. That is the eastern border of the promised land. And you see Aram at the top, Ammon in the middle, Edom on the bottom. All of these are the territories that are east of the promised land that are occupied by the enemy, if you will. Now, the lands of the Jordan west 
are to be occupied by the different tribal groups. Now, before we continue, just very briefly, I want you to think about the big theme of what's going on in this chapter. The work has been done by Joshua, but there is a work that is left to be done by the children of Israel. I want you to think of what has happened. Joshua has dislodged most of the enemies. He has broken their alliance. He has destroyed the fortified cities. He has made it possible to occupy the land. Does that mean that every single person is gone and every single battle is left unfought? The answer is no. And so it becomes a big, big picture for us as Christians. We might think, again, don't lose sight of the work that's been done by Joshua and then the work that's left to be done by the children of Israel. We might think of this as in terms of what we already know as Christians, the work that Jesus has done in our life, our Joshua. What has Jesus done in our life? He has come into the world. He has died for our sins. He has risen for our justification. He has ascended into heaven where he forever makes intercession for us. Does that mean that everything that could possibly be done regarding your salvation has been done? It has been done, D-O-N-E, done, done, done. Does that mean that the moment that you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, that all you now do is sit on your hands and wait for the rapture or just try somehow, some way to survive till death so that you get to go to heaven? Well, again, we know that just like their life is a battle, we have a battle in front of us. That we get up every single morning and we live our lives and we walk into a future that God has assigned for us. Now, these tribes are going to receive an inheritance. You may have received an inheritance sometime in your life. It might have been a modest inheritance. It may have been a major inheritance. But whether it was modest or whether it was major, when parents leave an inheritance, it sometimes will generate all kinds of drama in a family. If your mom and dad ever left you anything, it might have generated gratitude in your heart because your mother and your father worked hard all of their lives in order to make some sort of provision for you. But it could very well be that you might be in a world where your mother and your father, when they leave, they don't leave clear instructions and it generates bickering and fighting or it creates trust fund babies who decide that they're never, ever, ever going to work ever again. For the children of Israel, receiving their inheritance was supposed to motivate them to do good, to follow the Lord, to obey his commandments. For the Christian who has received Christ as their savior, it's supposed to motivate them to follow Jesus, to, to obey Jesus, and to do that which is right or that which is good. So for many centuries, the children of Israel 
had lived in the shadow of this promise. A promise given to Abraham, a promise given to Isaac, a promise given to Jacob. You'll remember their slavery into Egypt and then their remarkable release through the leadership of Moses and their wilderness wanderings to come to this place to be able to occupy the land. So think about it. The generations prior to Joshua, they lived in tents. They lived in slavery. They lived in journeys. But all of this was about to change. Again, the land of promise was penetrated. It was occupied. It was conquered. And now the distribution was about to take place. So the Lord reveals to an aging Joshua, there's a whole lot left to do in verses 1 to 2. What a profound picture of the need to persevere and endure, endure to the end of life in verses 1 through 6. Also given in the chapter is this special charge, divide the land. Which becomes again a picture of God's faithfulness in giving to them the very thing that was promised to them in verses 6 and 7. So the chapter reiterates the special concessions given to the two and a half tribes that elected to remain on the other side of the Jordan, which again is a picture of compromise of what we've already talked about, the borderline Christians in verses 8 through 32. Mention is made of the special inheritance of the tribe of Levi. In verse 14 and in verse 33, there to be ministers, there to be servants, there to be priests. Their portion is the Lord. By the way, who do you think got the most excellent portion? The Levites. We Christians are, are promised an inheritance, a reward. In the New Testament, Jesus is our inheritance. Remember, we aren't a group of people who inherit a land. We are a group of people who inherit a Lord. In the Old Testament, there were conditional and unconditional covenants. The land was to be possessed by the children of Israel forever. But it was conditioned on the faithfulness of the people of God. According to the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 13... They were given an inheritance, but we were entrusted with an even better inheritance. Jesus. All that Jesus stands to inherit, we inherit in him by grace. We're given permission to enjoy the inheritance now, but the full possession of our inheritance is yet future. And so there's a couple of things that you should, again, stick somewhere in your mind. Number one, there's the clear recognition at the beginning of the chapter that things aren't perfect. They are imperfect. But then, number two, there's this confident reckoning that there will be a complete possession. This is going to become important for each and every one of you because there might be some things in your life that are imperfect. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. But I also want you to be confident. Knowing that the God who's made promises to you. 
is going to keep his promises. So we begin with the failure to possess and the need to persevere in these first uh, six verses. And again, we're going to keep the map up just for a moment. In verse 1 it says, now Joshua was old, advanced in years. You're probably wondering, how old was he? Well, if you go all the way to the end of the book of Joshua, he dies at the age of 110. He enters the land and has been fighting throughout the land probably between 7 and 10 years. I'm going to suggest to you that he's probably about 90 years old. And by the way, when it says, now he was old, when it uses the term advanced in years... It doesn't just simply mean old, like you and I have come to think about old. I mean, you know, we could do old jokes here. How old is old? You are old when your children are eligible for Social Security. You know you're old when you look in the mirror and you look just like your mom and dad. You know you're old when you reach down to pick up your socks and then you realize you're not wearing socks. When it says advanced in years, it means, I don't know how else to say this. It means that you look old. That There used to be an old saying that you were rode hard and put in wet. Moses lived to an incredible age. But according to the Bible, he wasn't advanced in years in the sense that his eyes were bright and his hearing was clear. Being in the presence of God kept him young. The Bible says that David was 70 years old when he died. And he was advanced in years, it says. The reason being that David led a very hard life. As you can imagine, some people lead a relatively easy life, and some people lead a relatively hard life. Joshua has led a relatively hard life. And so when it says Joshua was old, he's, he's north of 90, south of 100, and look what it says, and the Lord said to him, I want to say, dude, you're old. Now, again, if the Lord ever says to you, you're old, think about this. This is a self-existent being who's been around forever. If he's a self-existent being who's been around forever and he goes, you're old, chances are you're old. But he also says there remains very much land yet to be possessed. He says, basically, in spite of your age and in spite of who you are and what you've done, there is work left to be done. We have unfinished business. So we have every reason to believe that Joshua and the people had fought bravely and well. There are, by the way, over 100 scripture references on the subject of inheritance. In the Bible, inheritance was in part the legal transmission of property after death. Now think about what's happening in the division of the land. This isn't simply something that they fight for. This is something that is given to them. For the most part, 
the meaning of the word inheritance in the Bible is linked to the idea of possession. Someone has said you can only possess what you experience. You possess salvation when you come into a right relationship with Christ. You possess the presence of the Holy Spirit the same way that you were saved by grace through faith. The presence of the Holy Spirit in our life is a gift of God. Jesus said, if I go, I'm going to send the Spirit who is going to be with you and in you. And so, again, the meaning of inheritance is linked to the idea of possession. And the children of Israel are going to be given their possession. In verse 2 it says, this is the land that yet remains. All the territory of the Philistines and all of the Gezerites from Sichor, which is east of Egypt, as far as the border of Ekron, northward, which, it, which, which is counted at Canaanite. Now, again, if we put the map back up and I, I, we, we don't have... the the, the, the ability to, to, to go further north or further south or east and west. And at some point, we're going to do that. But let me just put it simply to you. What is the land that remains? The land that remains are the pockets of resistance. The pockets of resistance are going to be in the southwest. If you see where the word Judah is and you see where the word Dan is and you follow the line all the way down to the bottom, that's modern Gaza. It was the ancient land of the Philistines who you are going to hear about repeatedly in the book of Judges. So the, the, the areas of resistance are in the south and the west. The areas of resistance are in the north and the east. So you see Aram. And then you see where it says East Manasseh, and you see that area, and then to the right of that area, these are the areas of resistance, profound resistance. So, we also know that the territories east to the Euphrates were promised to the Jews if you have a map in your, in your Bible and you look at Aram, Amman, Edom, and you keep going east till you get to the Tigris and the Euphrates River, all of that area was promised to the children of Israel. They never occupied it or controlled it. At the height of David's kingdom, they would. And so... The Philistine lands included the coastal regions, mostly to the south, the region that was called the Pentopolis. It was called the Pentopolis because there were five strong Philistine cities. And so part of the important point of the passage isn't just simply the geographical designations, but the fact that the enemies remain. The fact that the enemies remain and they remained dedicated to the proposition that Israel must be stopped. The enemy was dedicated to making sure that the children of Israel did not live in the land unmolested, uncontested. And that becomes something for you to consider. Because when you become a Christian, there are thoughts ideas, desires, preoccupations, 
that will harass you. We've repeatedly talked about the enemies that you have in this world. The world, the flesh, the devil. Your enemy wants to defeat you. Your enemy wants to destroy you. But we're given tools, weapons for our defense. We have God's authoritative and inspired word. We have the grace of God. We have the indwelling spirit of God. We have the interceding son of God. And so this becomes a picture, not just of Israel's struggle, but of the believer's struggle. We have enemies, visible and invisible. Satan targets the mind. Satan targets the body. Satan targets our will and our conscience. And he uses lies and suffering and pride and accusation. Satan wants to make us ignorant of God's will. Or impatient with God's will. Or for us to seek to act apart from God's will. Independent from God's will. And if not, he seeks to accuse us, either accurately or inaccurately. Just like Jesus is in heaven, interceding before before the throne, Satan is in heaven, accusing the brethren, accusing you, accusing me. Sometimes for reasons that are right, But each and every time, Jesus says, I've made a sacrifice. I've given my life. I've died on the cross. And so, the Lord Jesus has secured our inheritance. There's nothing that remains for us other than going to heaven in in one sense. However, again, there are battles along the way. Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, I want to know Jesus. I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Why? Why would he want to do something like that? Most people aren't going to pray, you know what, Lord? Um, I want to know about the power of your resurrection because... They're completely oblivious to the fact of what it means to be dead to themselves. No one will ever ask to know the power of his resurrection until you come to grips and you're dead to yourself. And the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Why in the world would you want to do that? Because it is that which creates the mechanism so that we can be formed and mold and shaped so that in humility and transparency and dependence we can depend upon God through Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit and so we be, we continue with the faithfulness of God and our glorious inheritance so we're going to skip down to verses 6 and 7 look what it says all the inhabitants of the mountains from Lebanon as far as the brook Misraphot and all the Sidonians, them I will drive out from before the children of Israel and only divide it by lot to Israel as an inheritance as I've, as I've commanded you. Think about what you're reading. These are the areas, if you go north, north, north in your map, 
the very northern border, as you go, you see where it says Azure, Reuben, and you go north, north, north. If you come to the very top of your map, that's the area of modern Lebanon and Sidon and Tyre, which is going to be occupied by an ancient people group called the Phoenicians. Now, here's the deal. The Lord says, I'm going to drive them out before the children of Israel. In other words, this means that they're still there. Here's what he is in effect saying. Don't let the fact that they're there, there, keep you from dividing the allotment to the tribes that I've assigned. He, he says in verse 7, now therefore divide this land as an inheritance to the nine tribes and half the tribe of Manasseh. This tribal allotment and division is going to take place in the chapters to come. But here becomes the point. The Lord insists that Joshua divide the land. In the book of Joshua, again, we've seen this reoccurring theme. There's a battle. Then there's the recognition of the faithfulness of God. Then there's the overcoming of temptation. Then there's the place of occupation. Then there is the reception of the inheritance. It becomes, again, a type and a picture for us. There is a battle. There's the recognition of the faithfulness of God. This becomes important, important, important to you, particularly if you're in a battle with things in your past, with preoccupations in the present. And then you wonder whether or not God is faithful and you discover that he is in fact faithful, that he's made promises and he will keep his promises. So this becomes a type and a picture of the faithfulness of God and the reality that, that we are going to receive the inheritance that we've been promised. Here becomes the bottom line. God is going to keep his promise. He's going to keep his promise to the children of Israel. He's going to keep his promise to you. They will receive their inheritance. You will receive your inheritance. The inheritance that they receive is land and geography. The inheritance that you received is far more important than any land or any geography. The smallest inheritance of God is greater than the largest inheritance that this world has to offer. No wonder in the New Testament it says you were bought not with gold or, or silver or things that perish, but you've been purchased by the blood of Jesus. Jesus would say, for what does it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul in Matthew chapter 16, verse 26? There is nothing that this world has to offer that compares to what you already have. I know it's going to be very difficult for most of you. Maybe some of you can do this. Most of you are going to have a struggle. But I want you to just for a moment pretend. 
that you have a billion dollars. Just sort of entertain it just for a moment. You have a billion dollars. You have a thousand million dollars. And I say, hey, would you like to go to Chick-fil-A with me? I'll buy you some iced tea. Well, you're laughing. Because you're going, well, you know what? I could just like buy the whole restaurant. And I could give you Chick-fil-A forever. So imagine I want to take you to Chick-fil-A and you have the ability to buy the entire chain and feed everyone forever. The reason why I'm bringing this up is because this is the kind of thing that the contrast is being made concerning the faithfulness of God and the reality of the inheritance and then the foolish choice to live on the opposite side of what has been promised. And we've already touched on this very in a very limited way, but look what it says in verse 8. With the other half-tribe, the Reubenites and the Gadites received their inheritance, which Moses had given to them. Remember, I talked about this earlier, how in the book of Numbers, these people wanted their inheritance right away beyond the Jordan eastward as Moses the servant of the Lord had given them two tribes had already been assigned the territories east of the of the Jordan Reuben and Gad so we can put the map back up again so you see east Manasseh on the east side of the Jordan you see where the Sea of Galilee is you see the little line that represents the Jordan River and it says east Manasseh all of that is east of the Jordan. Then you see this little designation for Gad. And you see this little designation for Reuben. Now, again, this is going to make sense in a moment. From Eror, which is the bank of the river Arnon, and the town that is in the midst of the ravine and the plain of Medaba, as far as Dibon. Medaba and Dibon are not on your map but it's on, in this eastern territory. If you go north of Edom, south of Ammon, this is the area that's being talked about. All the cities of Sichon, the king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, as far as the border of the children of Ammon. Now, Ammon, you can see, is this territory immediately to your right. Gilead, the border of the Gezerites, the Maakathites, all Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon, if you see the little body of water and you go north, 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 there's, a, there's another little body of, of water. You go north, north, north from there. There's a great big mountain. That's Mount Hermon, which gets the water in the winter. The, the, the mountain is filled with snow. The snow melts. The water comes down, feeds the headwaters of the Jordan. So it says... Of all the kingdom of Og and Bashan, who reign in Ashtoreth and Edra, who remain in the remnant of the giants, for Moses had defeated and cast out these. In the book of Numbers, it talks about how they've occupied this place and they've already defeated those people. It says in verse 13, Nevertheless, the children of Israel did not drive out the Gezerites or the Maakathites, but the Gezerites and the Maakathites dwell among the Israelites until this day. In other words, what God told them to do in the occupation of the land they never did. Now I want you to think about this for just a moment. 
Do you know Christians who struggle day after day and week after week and month after month and year after year fighting the same battles, the same enemies, the same difficulties who make the decision that there are certain things in their life that they know they need to get rid of, but they won't get rid of it. This is exactly what's happened to the children of Israel. This is what it means when God says, I want you to drive them out. But they didn't drive them out. This means that they made an accommodation. This was partial disobedience. In verse 14, it says, only to the tribe of Levi, he had given no inheritance. The sacrifices of the Lord God of Israel made by fire are their inheritance, as he said to them. What he is doing is he's making reference to the fact That in the book of Leviticus, when they would make the offerings in the book of Leviticus, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the trespass offering, these offerings were going to be a constant source of material provision for the tribal group of Levi because they still had to have a way to survive. But they're going to be scattered throughout all the land from the north to the south. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that when we get to verse 33. So Levi was excluded from the tribal allotments, which left 11 tribes. But Joseph's sons constituted two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. So now once again, we have 12 tribal groups. And so it can become very confusing to you because you go, well, wait a minute. Bible says there's 12 tribes and then there's 13 tribes and now we're back to 12 tribes. How many tribes are there? There's a total of 13 tribes, (laughs) but only 12 get an allotment of the land. And in verse 15, it says, and Moses had given the tribe of the children of Reuben an inheritance according to their families. Their territory was from Aror, which is on the bank of the river Arnon and the city that is in the midst Um, by the plain of Medaba. You can go through these different areas, Heshbon, um, Jahaza, as you go in verse 19. um, It it, it lists the mountain valley, Beth Peor, the slopes of Pisgah. This is a description of the physical geography of the areas that were occupied that are listed on your map of East Manasseh, Gad, Reuben, just so you understand that these are the areas that's being discussed. And then in verse 22, it says, the children of Israel also killed with the sword Balaam, the son of Beor, the soothsayer, among those who were killed by them. Now, in the Old Testament, there's a big deal made about this man in Numbers chapter 23, number 24, number 25. Very famous Singer-songwriter made up a song. He said, now Balaam was a prophet about the time that Moses was coming through. And every now and then God would speak to him and tell him what to say and do. He had a reputation in all of those parts of being on the line of power. But when Moab's king heard Moses was coming, he called him in his needy hour. And he said, Balaam, curse these Israelites. If you do, I believe I can beat them in a fight. And when Balaam asked the Lord, the Lord said, Balaam, don't you know? Israel is blessed by me. Don't you go mess up my show. So I'm giving you the brief version of Numbers chapter 23, 24, and 25. 
This is the Balaam who was conscripted by the enemies of Israel to make life impossible for the children of Israel. By the way, he's a wicked prophet who, whose compromise brings great harm to Israel. We're not told at what point in the campaign he was killed. Balaam is mentioned in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. He's mentioned in Jude chapter 11. He's mentioned in Revelation chapter 2, verse 14. He becomes a type and a picture of so-called religious people who invite the children of God to compromise. And he's put to death, rightly so. And in verse 23, it says, And the border of the children of Reuben was the bank of the Jordan. That's the river. This is the inheritance of the children of Reuben, according to their families. You can see where it's located on the map. Moses also had given an inheritance to the tribe of Gad, to the children of Gad, according to their families. Their Tory was Yatsar, or Jazir, and all the cities of Gilead, the half of the land of the Ammonites, as far as Aror, which is before Rabbah. Now, in verse 25, you can read it, and you could miss it, because this is actually a very interesting little passage, because we have an interesting problem, because the tribe of Gad possessed some of the territories that were held by the Ammonites. This was strictly forbidden in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 19. So people have said, how is it possible that Gad can occupy that territory when it, and in fact, God forbade them to occupy the territory? And the forbidding is in Deuteronomy 2.19 where it says, And when you come near the people of Ammon, do not harass them or meddle them. This is Deuteronomy chapter 2 verse 19. So the Lord gives them clear instructions. When you come to the people of Ammon, don't harass them, don't meddle with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the descendants of Lot as a possession. So the people to the right, the Ammonites, were direct descendants of our friend Lot, who, remember, was the nephew of Abraham. So how do we explain this? I think that the way that we explain it is in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 20, the text goes on and says that it was a land filled with giants and that this land of the giants had been taken captive by the people of Sihon. And so according to some scholars, they believe that the area that you see occupied by Gad was literally confiscated and taken by the people of Sihon, and so technically it wasn't a part of Ammon anymore, and so that gave them the right to occupy that particular area. And then it says in verse 26, and from Heshbon to Ramat Mitzpah, Betonim, from Ma'anim to the border of Debir. So when you hear these words like im, it's the plural in the Hebrew word. Just like when we have a when we put an S at the end of a word, it makes it plural, like 
cup and cups, dish and dishes. When you put an I in or an I am, it's speaking of the plurality of the noun that you're talking about. So there's a city mentioned in chapter 12, verse 26, called Debir, but this is a different Debir. There's a Debir on the west side of the Jordan, and there's a Debir on the east side of the Jordan. And then in verse 27, it says, And in the valley of Bet Haram, Bet Nimrah, Sukkot, Zaphon, the rest of the kingdom of Sihon, king of Heshbon, will the Jordan, with the Jordan as its border, as far as the edge of the Sea of Kinnereth. The Sea of Kinnereth is the Galilee to the north. On the other side of the Jordan eastward. This is the inheritance of the children of Gad, according to their families, the cities and their villages. And it's apparently a very fertile place. So Moses had given the inheritance to the half-tribe of Manasseh. It was the half-tribe of the children of Manasseh, according to their families. Their territory is listed again, Mahanaim, Bashan, all the kingdom of Og, the king of Bashan, and the towns of Jair, which are in Bashan. So the text lists 60 cities. The reason why there's 60 cities in this particular area, two reasons. Lots of water and lots of grain. And so with lots of water and lots of grain comes occupation because it becomes a sustainable environment, if you will. So... When you come down to verse 32, it says, These are the areas which Moses had distributed as an inheritance in the plains of Moab on the other side of the Jordan by Jericho eastward. Now, in short, the geographical designations are broken down from the land of Aror to Arnon River or the gorge of Medaba, as far as Debon. We have the land of the king of Sihon. We have, the, we have, as far as the border of the Ammonites, the land of the king of Bashan, as far as Salekah, the royal cities of Ashtaroth and Edre. And then it goes on and it says, drive them out. In verse 13, we have the lands of Reuben, verse 15 through 23, the lands of Gad, verse 24, the tribe of Manasseh, verse 29. So you see how those are broken down. But let me just make a few brief observations. We've already discussed how the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and um, the half-tribe of Manasseh in the book of Numbers seek to, to live on the east side of the Jordan. We've also talked about the risks and the rewards of that kind of a choice. And Warren Wearsby rightly calls these people borderline believers. You'll recall that when Israel camped for several months on the plains of Moab by the Jordan River, the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh see the fertile plains. They look at these fertile plains and they go, that's what I want. This is the place where I want to be. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment. Do they know that this isn't the promised land? The answer is yes. They know that the promised land, the land that's been promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is on the west side of the river. This is going to be very, very important in our discussion for just a moment. Because there are people in your life, and there may even been a time in your life, where you thought that it wasn't really Jesus that you needed. 
that it was a church or an understanding of the Bible or the ability to answer people's questions. You wanted the kind of life that allowed you to be religious or you wanted the kind of life that said that you could be a good person or a church person. But the reality is that there is no life apart from Christ. Is it possible that you can read your Bible, carry your Bible, know your Bible, go to church, but your heart is distant and hard and unconvinced? I'm going to suggest to you that they understood that it was outside of the promise. The south boundary of the promised land began at the Dead Sea, stretched north past the Galilee. The Jordan River was the eastern frontier, according to Numbers 32, verse 3, and then again in verse 12. But this didn't stop the two tribes from wanting that land for themselves. So according to the book of Numbers, chapter 34, verse 1, they saw the land, that it was fertile. They saw the land, that it was suitable for livestock. They focused their eyes on the land, and they wanted it. That means covet. They were willing to compromise in order to secure the land. And when they asked Moses in order to occupy the land, for those of you who know your Bible or who have read your Bible or who are familiar with the passage, you remember Moses' response. For those of you who haven't read it, are unfamiliar with his response, it wasn't, sure, dude, go ahead. It was anger. Moses was angry. Moses charged them with being disloyal. He called them half-hearted and selfish. And when they pressed and pressed and insisted and insisted in Numbers chapter 32, verses 6 through 15, Moses was forced to work out a compromise. And the compromise included he would give them the land if they agreed to fight for the remainder of the tribes to inherit the promised land. And that's in fact what they would do. The tribes of Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben would form the tip of the spear in the earlier campaign that we've already talked about. They will march and they will provide an army and they will keep their promise. But in the scriptures, they would be forever referred to the people as the people on the other side. The people on the other side. These were the people who always lived just short, outside of the promise. And you remember, we've already talked about it, and I'm not going to belabor the point. Their land was under continual attack from invading armies. So you see the Assyrians to the north, the Ammonites to the east, the Egyptians and Edomites to the south. They are going to be under constant attack, constant pressure, constant difficulty, just like you, if you decide, I want to live in the world. I want to live on the other side. 
I want all of the advantages of the unbeliever and I want all of the advantages of the believer. I want the best of both worlds, but you're putting yourself in danger. That's part of the problem. There are no natural barriers to protect them. There wasn't rivers or mountains to protect them from the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Assyrians, the Midianites, the other nomadic tribes. And because of their covetousness and because of their compromise, their covetousness and their compromise would cause them to look to the north to the Assyrians, the eastern Babylonians, the southern Egyptians, and they began to adopt the ways, the manners, the speech, the culture And they were the first to be taken into captivity by the Assyrians in the north. And the tribe of Manasseh, the tribe of Gad, the tribe of Reuben will disappear from history. And then we see the favor of God for those who chose him. Look what it says in verse 33. Again, remember verse 14 that we've already looked at. Only the tribe of Levi he'd given no inheritance. The sacrifices of the Lord God of Israel made by fire are their inheritance. Here in verse 33, but to the tribe of Levi, Moses had given no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel was their inheritance as he had said to them. So the children of Israel were to inherit the land of Canaan. The children of Levi were to inherit the Lord himself. The nation Israel, according to Psalm 33, verse 12, was seen as God's inheritance. The psalmist refers to these children and these people as my possession, my inheritance. And the fact that the Levites didn't receive a tribal allotment doesn't mean that they were homeless. It doesn't mean that they wandered from place to place or land to land or city to city. God did, in fact, assign them cities and lands throughout the land. As a matter of fact, we know uh, from Joshua chapter 21, verse 41, that there were some 48 places scattered among the promised land where the people of Levi were to occupy. So according to the Bible, the Messiah was to inherit the nations. That's the Gentiles. In other words... God's inheritance is Israel. The Messiah's inheritance is everyone, everywhere. If you're not a Jew, you are the inheritance of Jesus. In the book of Colossians chapter 1 verse 12, Paul says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light, verse 13. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed to us the kingdom of his own dear son of love in whom we have redemption through his blood, through the forgiveness of sin. In that passage of scripture, part of our inheritance, we become qualified. We, be, we are delivered. We are conveyed, which means transported. We are redeemed, which means bought back. We are forgiven, which means we are exonerated. 
the Christian has an inheritance, not just in the sweet by and by, but in the sweet here and now. Deliverance from the powers of darkness, transportation into the kingdom of the son of his love. That's what conveyed means, by the way. It means brought. We have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of sin. There's an inheritance now, and there's an inheritance later. We have the hope of heaven. The Bible says, the soul that sins shall surely die, Ezekiel 18.4. But believers are made alive in Christ forevermore. It says in 1 Corinthians 15.22 and Romans 6.23, heaven isn't a reward for diligent service or because we've fought hard battles against our enemies or because we've conquered secret sin. Heaven is your inheritance. There was a man who died. His son asked the question, what did he leave? The attorney said, he left everything. Yeah, when you die, you don't take it with you. You leave it behind. Anything that we receive from the Lord can rightly be called an inheritance. In John 14, remember Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you to receive you to myself so that where I am, you will be. For the Christian, our inheritance includes all the rewards of salvation and then all of the tools for discipleship. The Bible says we're heirs with Christ, Romans 8, 17. In the book of Hebrews, we're given the explicit statement that our inheritance required the death of the testator. That means, the writer of Hebrews says, in order for you to get everything that God wanted you to have, Jesus would have to die. In other words, in order for the will to go into effect, the person whose will it is dies. Jesus dies, and the will of the Son becomes in effect. When Patrick Henry died, his will stipulated, this is all the inheritance I can give to my dear family. The religion of Christ can give them one which will make them rich indeed. It was his way of saying, this modest allotment that I've left to my family is meaningless. The only thing that I can give you that really will make you rich is a right relationship with God and Christ. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter 1.14, an inheritance that can never perish that will never spoil, that will never fade. You have an inheritance that will never perish, 
spoil or fade, kept in heaven just for you. You have an inheritance now. You'll have an inheritance later. So remember the broad, broad theme of the chapter. Joshua has done a work. The very fact that he's done a work doesn't mean that there's no work left for Israel. Israel's going to have to occupy the inheritance that's been given to them. And they will either occupy it faithfully or unfaithfully. Diligently or haphazardly. They'll do it in obedience or disobedience. The same is true of us. Jesus has done a work. But that doesn't mean there's no work left for you. Because God's calling you to do exactly what he was calling the children of Israel to do. Be faithful. Be obedient. And allow the provision that God has made for you to become a provision for everyone around you. So, chapter 13 comes to a close. The next time you and I meet, we're going to talk about Caleb's prayer, his request. Remember, Joshua's old, <laughs> so is Caleb. So we're going to see some senior citizens do some amazing things for Christ. Hey, just for those of you who are listening, being wrinkled doesn't mean being ruined. There's still a lot of land yet to possess. Heavenly Father, thanks for this time. Lord, thank you for the image that you give us in this chapter and the call that you make for us. Lord, that we want to be faithful and possess the land and to persevere in our faith. Lord, we pray that we would be faithful to the inheritance that you've entrusted to us. And Lord, we pray that we wouldn't make the foolish choice to live on the other side of the river. And so again, Lord, we commit our lives afresh to you. We pray that you would renew within us a commitment to love you and to serve you and to obey you and then to possess, to possess our inheritance. In Jesus' name, amen.